2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter number 6, verse 12. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, to Jerusalem, with rejoicing. Say rejoicing. Rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent or the tabernacle of David that he had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And verse 23 is rather cryptic. It says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is a, an account that takes us to extremes. Uh, we've got a husband and a wife. We've got a king and those that look to the king. Uh, we've got the celebration and the dancing in the streets. And then we've got an isolated woman looking down from a window with a sneer on her face. And then we've got more, probably importantly than anything, you've got what I call a juxtaposition of hearts. You've got the contrasted heart of David and his wife. You've got David, who in this passage, when I think of that testimony of David as being a man after God's own heart, this is what I think of. I think in this passage, we see deeper into the heart of David than we do anywhere else in Scripture. And we see his gloriously filled heart contrasted with the heart of Michael. She, her heart's filled with something else. Her heart is filled with anger and resentment and bitterness. But David's the kind of guy that um, I, I would like to go to church with. He's the kind of guy that I want to worship with. Matter of fact, he's the kind of guy I want to lead me in worship. And the reason why is not because, you know, of any musical stylistic thing. It's because he's an individual who has fully abandoned himself to the goodness and the glory of his God. And he motivates me. How many of us have been in lots of worship settings where we feel very inhibited? We feel like maybe even in those moments, I, I would like to do something, but I don't know if I'm in an atmosphere or a, a congregation or a place where I'm allowed to do certain things. And so when we are in a worship setting sometimes, one of the hardest things to do is to kind of divorce yourself from, from people around you and just worship God. And at the same time, let's be honest, I don't think any of us have a free pass to without no boundaries whatsoever, just get our worship on the way we want to get our worship on no matter what anybody else is doing. Corporate worship, yeah, we're aware of God vertically, but we're also surrounded by people horizontally. David, in this instance, uh, I call this, or I used to, back in our old independent Baptist days, we called this uh, David getting a case of the I can't help it. Just couldn't help himself. And I love the fact that he wasn't supposed to. 
There are moments in your journey with Jesus where you will get into a place where you just can't help it. And you will be so caught up in the joy of the Lord and the goodness of God and the glory and the gratitude, all of those G words, the glory, the gratitude, the greatness, the goodness, all of that. You get so caught up in it that the, it, it's almost a spiritual impossibility for you to put a cork in it. You just have to be the uncorked champagne bottle of worship that sprays glory for the one who has set you free. And that's why in this passage, David stands before us as a dancing king. So let me give you some backdrop to it. Because the question is, what's he so happy about? And I'm going to tell you, it was a celebration that was 20 years in the making. So let me, let, me, let me start with why he's so grateful. This is David's grateful dance. This dance has many components. Let me give you this first one. The grateful dance of David. Verses 6 through 9, which I did not read, give the account of David having lived for three months in a state of confusion, bewilderment, and being perplexed at God. As a matter of fact, he asks this question. He says, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was the newly crowned king of Israel, and he had moved the center of the civic life, the governmental life, even the military life of Israel, he had moved it to Jerusalem, but now he wanted the worship life to be centered in Jerusalem. And the key component to Israel's worship was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the Ark of God. Now, I'm not talking about Noah's Ark. We're talking about the box. And the box was contained with uh, a golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that blossomed or budded, and the tablets of stone that had the Mosaic law written on them, or the Ten Commandments. And those all went inside of this box that God told the craftsmen exactly how to make. And on top of that box, there was this ornate and costly golden lid that had two angels facing each other with their wings pointed down and their faces pointed down as to honor the glory of God. And in ancient Israel, that box, the Ark of the Covenant, would literally uh, be associated almost inseparably with the glory of God, the light of God would shine down on this thing and the people would know that the Lord was among them. But many years earlier, the Philistines had captured the Ark of God when all of Israel had backslidden on the Lord, and the Philistines came in. They stole the Ark of God. God wasn't going to bless them the way he had blessed Israel with it, so God fought the Philistines. And so they took this Ark, which became a curse to them. They put it on a cart and sent it back into Israel. And so for 20 years, the Ark remained in a man's house named Abinadab. It was no longer being the center of worship, but it was now within the boundaries of Israel, but it wasn't being used for the purpose that it was originally created. When David became king, he said, I want the ark of God to return to its centrality, its central place in our worship life. And so what did David do? David, with full sincerity in his heart, David was a leader he was decisive. He was pragmatic. He said, where's the ark? And they said, well, we all know it's down in Abinadab's house. It's been there for 20 years. David said, I want you to build a new cart. I want you to put it on the cart. I want uh, Abinadab and his sons to bring it back to Jerusalem. Get that ark here because I'm going to set up civic, uh, I mean, excuse me, uh, corporate worship for all of Israel centered around the ark of God. So the people get excited. They build a, a, a cart and they put the ark in the cart and they're transporting it back to Jerusalem and it's being pulled by some oxen. And as the oxen are carrying it around towards Jerusalem, the terrain gets uneven, and one of the oxen begins to stumble. And there was a man, one of Abinadab's sons, named Uzzah. And Uzzah is in the cart. He was a younger man. He's in the cart, and he puts his hand out to keep the ark from potentially spilling out of the cart and onto the ground, which would have been horrible. And immediately as he touches the ark, God strikes him dead. God bless you. Dismiss tonight. I hope you have a good evening. <laughs> it's intense. Most of our hearts would be like, God, what, what are you doing? And if you felt that way, don't worry, you're in good company because the Bible says not only did David feel that way, David got angry at God for that. And then, as David pondered what had happened, the Bible says a few verses later that David became very afraid. And so, 
they said, David gave the command, he said, pull this cart over, we're right by Obed-Edom's house, pull it into Obed-Edom's front yard, park it there, we've got to go figure out what we did wrong. You can go to a parallel account in First Chronicles chapter number 15, and you find out that during that time period, David either himself or had somebody search the law of Moses to find out what it said about the ark. And what David found out was something he didn't know. God gave very specific instructions about what to do with the ark and what not to do with the ark, and you were never to put your hand on the ark. As a matter of fact, no human hand was allowed to touch it. It had rings built into it, and only the priests were allowed to transport the ark, and they would slide poles through those rings, and there'd be at least two priests in the front, two priests on the back, and they would carry the ark on their shoulders on these poles, and where Uzzah made the breach was Uzzah put his hand on it. And so it was their ignorance of the precepts of the Lord that brought death. Now, here's a very important point. It's not my main point of the message, but I do want us who, I think sometimes we have the potential in Western 21st century Christianity, we have the potential to worship without thinking about the one we're worshiping. And we have a tendency to get a little casual at times in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And here's the thing. God still holds us accountable for the things we do in ignorance. And Uzzah found that out in a devastating way, and so did all of Israel. And so they parked the ark, and for three months it sat in Obed-Edom's house. And by the time we get to this passage, David has found out, I know how to bring the ark now into Jerusalem, and I know how to do it according to the precepts of the Lord. So he had found in Numbers 4, and I think it's again in Numbers 7, exactly how you're supposed to do it. And so this moves us down closer to where I began reading. In verse number 11, it's what it says. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom three months. Now, hold on a second. Let me just go here. I should have mentioned this. When David and Israel were bringing up the ark right before Uzzah got killed, the Bible says there were 30,000 people gathered all, every priest in Israel and 30,000 people, notables in Israel, and it was a massive parade slash festival slash celebration. So this thing was a massive party all under the banner of the new king, and God kills one of the guys in the car, and it ruins everything. Total buzzkill, I mean, just crushed the celebratory atmosphere. David had waited 20, moment, uh, 20 years, Israel had waited 20 years, and by the time that they finally get the ark coming up there, and it's massive celebration, they're getting their worship on, and boom, God reminds them, I'm a holy God, you need to think about how you worship me. And so obviously David struggled with that, and then he had to wait another three months before he figured out what to do. So now when you get to verse number 11, you've got that three-month period in the house of Obed-Edom, but now in verses 12 and 13, now they're doing it right, and that's where we pick up the celebration. So that's why in verse number 12 it says, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, very quickly here, because this is really not the main point of the message, but it sets the backdrop for it. So David is now honoring the Lord, uber consecrated. Every six paces, they stop and they offer a sacrifice unto the Lord. And then they go another six paces and they're offering a sacrifice. When I say they're offering a sacrifice, that means they're offering a sacrificial animal as under the Lord. They're giving burnt offerings unto the Lord and they're making sure that every step of the way as they're bringing the precious Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, all of the flippancy, all of the casualness, all of the thoughtlessness, it's gone. They are worshiping a holy God and they now recognize we can't play around with worship. And so they are over-consecrated, not in a negative way, but they're going over and above and making sure, God, we want to honor you every step of the way. And as they're doing it with every step, you got to think, if I'm there, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. The last time we tried this, dude died. We need to be really careful. And so six steps, nobody's dead. I'm feeling better. 
Six steps, hey, nobody's dead, I'm feeling good. I get a half mile down the road, I start rejoicing. I start recognizing the favor of the Lord is on what we're doing. God is receiving our worship. The ark is coming back. And so everything that they took for granted the first time, they've now consecrated unto the Lord. And that consecrated worship actually produces a measure of joy that has depth in it. Listen, I'm all about freedom. I believe that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But I want us to remember, we are never so free in our worship that we're allowed to forget the one we're worshiping. Western Christians, let's hear this, all of us. I'm preaching to me, I'm preaching to you, and anybody that wants to listen. I'm telling you, sometimes the danger is that we worship worship. We worship a style. We worship a song. We worship a beat. We worship our, our favorite climactic moment, and, we, and if we're not intentional about our worship, then, then we end up just basically enjoying a sound and a rhythm, and we forget God. And that's not worship. That's religion. And so worship means we come to the place. I like to pre-worship before I get into worship. You know what that means? I don't expect to walk through the doors of the sanctuary and on the first note of the first you know, stroke of the drums, all of a sudden, boom, now I'm in worshipville. That's not the way it works. So I like to prepare my heart. And so now they're prepared, they're consecrated, they're coming in and they are recognizing we are worshiping the Lord as he has told us to worship him. And David begins to get filled with joy. Just a quick word here. And really, I didn't intend to even share any of this. I just think it's appropriate. Um, there is a myth that says the more we're thoughtful about worship, the more we might put effort and intentionality into planning how we're going to worship, the more that we are intentionally consecrated and reverent, whatever that might mean. I'm not here to define reverence for anybody, but there is a myth in the body of Christ, and it's probably the younger you are, it's easier to believe this myth, that real worship is just, man, we get our vibe on, we just wait for the Holy Ghost to do something, and listen, guys, we, we just need to recognize recognize there are moments in worship where we are going to get set free and and I love that I don't have any rhythm at all I'm a terrible dancer but there are times where whatever parts might cooperate with the rhythm I'm going to get those parts in there and and do my best it's a little dorky I'm almost 50 years old I'm a white guy it's not really the most awesome dancing in the world but I there are times where I just say I want to get this in there but there are also times where I feel the, 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 the fear of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and the holiness of the Lord, and the only thing I really want to do is get on my face before the Lord and just be still and quiet and reverent. The key is this. As long as we're approaching it intentionally, I believe we have great opportunity to bring great pleasure to the Lord. And that's what worship is supposed to be about. It is to offer up our, our understanding and our declarations that he is worthy. It comes from the old English word worthship. We worship, we acknowledge your worthiness. So a word to the wise is sufficient. I don't need to, to dwell there very long. I, I like all kinds of worship. We do very animated worship here. We, we don't have worship police, but I'm gonna tell you, each of us, each of us as worshipers, we're not here to critique the band. We're not here to get our own way when it comes to worship. If you come in and you're always wanting your way, then you're not worshiping. Even when you get your way, you're not worshiping. But if we come in and we can just say, I'm going to find the Lord in the midst of all of this because he's the one I came here for. He's the one I came here for. This, this scene is not for me. I am here in the scene for him. That's, that's, that's like right there. That's where he wants to get all of us. So back to the dancing king. Let's get into verses 14 and 16. Because we see David's dance was born from gratitude, but now watch it get unrestrained. Look at verses 14 and 15. Look, just look at his actions. Just let the Bible say what it says. And this is the man after God's own heart in the presence of the Lord, filled with the Spirit of the Lord. And it says, he danced. And it says he did it with all of his might. And it was a scene where there was shouting and the sound of the shofar, the sound of the ram's horn. Now, come on now. Come on, my conservative Bible Belt, longtime Christian friends. Dancing, furiously dancing with all of his might. And then the context for it, David would have been shouting, all of Israel 
was shouting. Some, some yahoos brought a shofar. Maybe a bunch of the priests are blowing the shofar. So this is the counterbalance to what we would typically think of as reverent, dignified, God-ordained worship. You see, that's what I love about this. It's intentional, it's consecrated, it's according to the word, but it's also enthusiastic and passionate. And, and many of us have been raised, or maybe even our personal preferences, as the, the quieter, qu more quiet it is and the more still it is, the more it pleases the Lord. Well, David's in trouble if that's the case. Because David is dancing. He's 40 years old at this time, I think, maybe, maybe 30 years old at this time. No, he's 40 years old at this time, and he's dancing with all of his might. That means he's sweaty, he's twirling. The Bible is going to tell us here in a little bit that he's, he's taken off his priest, excuse me, his kingly garments, and he's basically in the lightest uh, undergarment, and he is dancing with all of his might in front of all the people. He's the most dignified officer in the land. He's the king of all people. But in this moment, David is not interested in being revered as the king of Israel. He finds himself in a childlike spirit rejoicing and celebrating unrestrained because the glory of his father has come back and found Jerusalem after years of them living in shame and reproach because Ichabod, the glory of God, had departed. And now the glory of God was coming back. Um, that's what we need in our lives, friends. We need the glory of God in our lives, not just here. I want it here. This is, this is about the most likely place where the glory of God could perhaps most easily manifest, but man, we're only here a couple hours a week, so th that doesn't cut it. I need the glory of God in my Toyota RAV4 on the way home tonight. I need the glory of God. I needed it today in the surgeon's consultation. I just wanted the glory of God to be in that room. And I had the closest thing to the glory of God. I had Amy in the room with me. And that's about as close as I can get, humanly speaking. But so we're in there, and I just want the presence of the Lord. I want the peace of the Lord. I want the joy of the Lord. And friends, the beauty of it is, is we have open access through Jesus Christ at all times to connect with the goodness and the glory of the Lord. And David, in this moment where he had, he had prepared a place for the glory to fall. Don't miss that. All of this was intentionally prepared to welcome the presence and the glory of the Lord. David didn't have the mindset of, ah, he shows up, he shows up, it's no big deal. We're going to have a good party anyway. David was like, no, let's carve out everything. Let's do it according to the word. Let's get our hearts. And as he recognized what God was doing among Israel again, he began to explode with unrestrained joy. Um, the pastor in me wants to give kind of like a, a buffer to this because I know all it takes in a charismatic church is for the pastor to preach this message. And on Sunday, you got 50 people running and hopping off the stage and doing mosh pits and stuff like that. That's not what we're talking about here. But at the same time, I, I do want to say this. I, I think the Lord's trying to uninhibit some of you. I think some of you care too much what people think. Some of you have a dance or two that's been pent up in you for years and you know you want to and you sense that the Lord wants to but you have that little inner Pharisee running around saying you better not, you better not, you better not. And uh, David had crucified his Pharisee so he, he, he was able to dance with all of his might and everybody's shouting. Um, ancient Hebrews knew way more about how to worship than 21st century uh, Southern evangelicals. Um, it, it involved everything, and it was loud. Go read through the Psalms. They advocate, the Psalms advocate loud worship, loud praise. When, <laughs> when we've turned up the volume in here before, you know, it used to, it hasn't in a long time, it would generate some complaints, and I was like, that's too loud. And depending on how that was brought to us, there were times where I'm like, you know, I hear what you're saying, you're right, it, it's too loud, we probably could turn it down. But there were other people that came just kind of bullish with me, you know, just like, God better bless God, you better turn that music down. And I just say, well, you know, the Bible says, make a loud noise in the sanctuary. So depending on the attitude of the one approaching us with the complaint, we would give various answers. But 
Regardless of what it was, there was only one person complaining in this passage, and it didn't end well for her. But here's the thing I love about this. Verse 14 says, David danced before the Lord. You see, David's audience wasn't the priests. It wasn't the people. He wasn't dancing to gain the approval of of his wife. David seemed to be able to get lost in the moment, and the Bible records this fact. David's motivation and audience was the audience of one. David was dancing and worshiping and pouring out with all of his being adoration and gratitude and joy. He was doing it in the presence of omniscient eyes looking down on him from the very one who had said, I'm going to make you the king of Israel. I'm There's a hundred different ways I could go with this, but let me just apply it this way. Get with the Lord, get before the Lord. Do it often. Don't wait till you get here. There's something that the heart of a father adores when nobody else is around and he can look and he can just see us in whatever state we're in, just recognizing all we want to do is be in your presence right now. I love my wife and I love my children and they love me, but there are times where each of us is four independent Christians. We, there are times where we just want to kind of get everybody in. Y'all go into the other room. I need to have a meeting with Jesus in this place. And there are times where the greatest thing you can do is, is not go to a church service to worship, but to get somewhere very private. Some of you like going on walks and getting in nature and everything. And you meet with the Lord out there in nature. And other people, for me, it's very strange if you're interested at all. Where I feel the Lord's presence the most is when I can get in a completely dark room with no noise, no ambient noise whatsoever. It's kind of like the womb. You just want to be in there with the Lord. And if I can get all of the light blocked out and all of the noise blocked out and I can sit in a place like that for a couple of hours with the Lord, I feel like, he's, like I, could, I could touch him almost. But the key is this, ultimately worship is, is, is upward, it's vertical. And so make, let's be like David. If we want David's passion, if we want David's dance, if we, even if we physically don't dance, but if we want that spirit to be released in us and through us, the key is this, you've got to know who your audience is. And to the degree that we're fixated on people, whether to please them or to critique them or to observe them. Um, The greatest hindrance in corporate worship is people watching other people. You want to know how to lose your worship vibe in the moment is start watching how somebody else is or is not worshiping God. And in the moment where you're distracted by people, you've actually missed the whole point. The whole point is to bask in the glory and the grandeur of God and how good he is to you. And when we do that, we will have a dance in our spirit and for those that care to express it that way, and David was one of them, there's a, there's a dance before the Lord. So let me get down into uh, how it happens. So just picture the scene. Tens of thousands of happy Hebrews being led by their king. Saul had never done this. Saul had no appetite for spiritual things. So this is brand new in Israel. They've never had a king do something like this. And he's not just standing there watching the professionals do it. He's leading the processional, twirling and dancing in a, a linen ephod, uh, just a, a, it's a basic garment. And, and he's just, just blowing it out in, in, in just exuberant praise. And so that's contagious. And so here is, is what David does. And this is what I love because now David, who although he was worshiping before the Lord, he knew it had a horizontal application. Because when you are worshiping vertically as an individual, it's going to change your horizontal relationships. So this is what it looked like for David. I call it a generous dance because the leaping spirit on the inside translated into a giving spirit on the outside. So verse number 17, it says, they brought in the ark of the Lord. So they made it through the streets. They come into the tabernacle, the tent that David had said. They set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, these burnt offerings represent that were wholly consumed, completely consumed, 
and they're an offering that typifies the, the acknowledgement of the fullness and the lordship of God. So the entire burnt offering was consumed, and it was an offering that they kept nothing from themselves, so it's an expression of, you deserve it all. You're worthy of it all. We give it all to you. We surrender all to you. And then it has the peace offerings, and those offerings were more conditioned towards an expression of a need of forgiveness and restoration. So as they're acknowledging that God is everything with the whole burnt offerings, the peace offerings are acknowledging that, Lord, we know that we have no claim on our own to this. We know that we have sinned against you. We know that we're here by your grace. And so, Lord, forgive us of our sins. Restore us in full favor. And so David goes inside in this intense project. Think about the, the logistics of this project, the precise way that they brought the ark into the, into the city, sacrificing all of those animals along the way, doing it exactly by the book. This intense project at the end of it results in this wholehearted abandonment of worship with these amazing sacrifices under the Lord. Again, let me make this point, especially if you're a millennial or younger, even Gen Xers might need to hear this. I think boomers have, have a little edge on us because they grew up in a time where consecration was more manifest and more expected. There may have been some legalism attached to it, granted, but I'm going to tell you something. There was a whole lot more thought in the generations that have gone before us concerning worship than there is now. I don't mind making that statement, even if it offends. It doesn't mean everybody's thoughtless or cavalier with their worship now. I'm just saying generationally, our generation tends to be more me-centered. And how does it please me? I got to get my worship on. What are y'all going to do for me? And that's, that's not consecration. But David, the end result of all of the thought, all of the planning, all of the intentionality, all of the consecration, all of the making sure they followed the precepts of God, the end result was a greater level of joy than had ever been seen in Israel. And the other thing is, is that it, it res the response was to offer up more of themselves under the Lord. It's just interesting to me because of the myth and the lie and the deception that goes around now that, that, that seems to want to say, well, planning and preparing and boundaries and precepts, that, that quenches the Holy Spirit. Friends, we haven't seen in, in Israel for centuries, we haven't seen a more planned out, thoughtful, precept-bounded manner of worship than this, and we've also not seen this elevation of passion, expression, and wholehearted devotion. So I will push back against the, the lie of a generation that says, well, the more you plan and the more you prepare and the more thought you put it into ahead of time, you're going to quench the Holy Spirit. I don't think you can back that up with Scripture. I think that posture of the heart determines everything. And if your planning is unto the Lord, he'll bless it. If your preparation is unto the Lord, he'll bless it. If your consecration is unto the Lord and all of your preparation, if that's all unto the Lord, then when the moment comes to release all of that, the Lord's going to be present. And so that's what we see here. And so it's just good. It's just good to see David receiving so much from the Lord inwardly and then turning around and offering it back to the Lord in a generous display of worship and sacrifice. But it didn't stop there. Verses 18 and 19, David not only sacrificed unto the Lord, but he gives gifts to other people. I love this. Dave, when David had finished offering the burnt offerings, and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And this is verse number 19 tells us how he blessed them. He distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house." We, we don't get this because we can get food pretty much whenever and wherever we want now. But in this day, the extent, the magnitude of what this is describing would have been mind-blowing. It wasn't just the guys. And remember, this was a very patriarchal culture where men were everything, women were not as much in that culture and in that day. But when David got the joy of the Lord on him, when he got the glory of the Lord all around him, when the whole thing was to worship and release glory and praise and, and, and dance and honor and songs unto the Lord, the, the, 
the work of the Lord, which began vertically with the people of Israel, then began to hit each other horizontally. And David is in charge of the treasury. He's the king. And he had prepared ahead of time. This stuff didn't just happen on a whim. David said, I want to bless the people. So every man and every woman, you're going to get to take home a goodie bag. And so each of them got food to take back home, and it came from the king. Think of how honored the people must have felt that the king was not only worshiping God, but he was thinking of them. That's awesome leadership, by the way. If you're in leadership anywhere in the kingdom, it sounds real spiritual to just say, well, it's all about the Lord, it's all about the Lord. Well, I, I get what we're saying when we say stuff like that, but the Lord wants you to know, hey, if it's all about me, you're going to honor those to whom honor is due. You're going to show honor, you're going to show value, you're going to show favor. And David was getting the most amazing breakthrough season of his life. And when he's experienced, he's like, man, this is so good. I have to share it with other people. And so David takes this breakthrough season that he had gotten, and he starts blessing the fire out of all of the people. And so everybody went home with a great meal and a great celebration. Uh, I'll just give you this. Let's be so Christian that we never suppress the urge to share our blessings with others. Let's just be like Jesus like that. Jesus said, and this is, I think this is one of the most unbelieved promises, statements that he ever made. Paul quotes Jesus in saying this. Jesus said, it's better for you to be the giver than the receiver. Jesus said that. Nobody else says that. Your flesh never says that. Your flesh says, that's a great Bible verse, but I think I prefer to be the receiver. But Jesus, the Son of God who is truth, said, it is better, it's more blessed for you to be the one who gives than the one who receives. And so when we see this, David, long before Jesus ever spoke this, David is saying, I want to make sure I am the giver in this. As you go about your next week, you can, you can really hunker down on what you haven't been given or what's been taken from you or how you haven't gotten your due or how other people are getting blessed and you're not, you can, you can fixate on that if you want to and you're going to be like the lady at the end of this chapter. Or you can get in that place where your audience is one and you can stay there until the Lord convinces you how much he loves you and how good he's been to you and how that his plans for you are to bless you and to prosper you and he's still got way more to pour out. And you can just soak in that glorious moment and when you leave, you're not gonna be worried about what other people haven't given you. You're gonna say, how can I bless others? And your life's gonna be better. So David comes to this end of this and in verse 20, it says this, and David returned to bless his household. So he's led in worship. He's led in generosity. He's been the dancing king. Everybody saw that their king was a worshiper. Their leader was a worshiper. And now David is finished with all of his official duties. And I, I just see this. I see him so excited because for him, the party's not over. He gets to go home and he gets to bless his wives. Yes, he had many wives. And he gets to bless his kids. And so he's coming in, he's like, the party's going to go on now, I get to go home and celebrate Yahweh with my family. And it's not going to happen that way. Because David is married to the most bitter woman in the land. And I want us to end by highlighting her, and it's a very simple application. What do we learn from the life of Michael? Don't be her. It is not rocket science. Don't be her. So let's find out who she is so we can not be her. David's dance, though it was generous and though it was grateful, it was contested. Michael's going to fight it. This woman was the daughter of the former king. She was very bitter at her husband. Her daddy was the first king, and she was no longer in love with David who her father married her off to. And look at what it says. Michael, note this, the daughter of Saul. Not Michael, the wife of David. Michael, Holy Spirit says, remind everybody who she really belonged to. The daughter of Saul looked out of the window. This is while the celebration's going on. And she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. So here's Michael, who grew up in a king's house. And her dad 
was dignified, he was royal, he was a maniac, he was carnal, he was murderous, but on the outward, he always kept the image up. And so Michael grew up looking at daddy, saying that's what a king is like. And David was the opposite. David was out in the streets with the common folk and acting like anything but what she thought a king should act like. And so Michael represents those people that overvalue dignity and undervalue liberty. She was all about dignity on the outside and cared nothing about liberty on the inside. And I think even where it says she looked out of a window. So she's elevated, she's in the palace, and she is not only elevated, but she's isolated. The Bible says back up in there in verse number 15 that all of Israel was there to welcome the ark of God. All of Israel, except Michael. So Michael isolates herself from the worship, isolates herself from the celebration of the ark coming, isolates herself from all of the noise and all of the hoopla and all of the, the stuff that she just didn't have any appetite for. And she not only isolates, she elevates. She looks down on that stuff. And friends, I'm going to tell you, that's a religious spirit. That's an individual who loves shadow more than substance who loves form more than fullness. And she hated everything that was going on. Go a little further because remember what the application is. Don't be her. It goes a little bit further because we get a peek inside her, her, her chest. It says she despised David in her heart. Now the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved the writers of Scripture. And so when we read Scripture, we're reading the thoughts of God communicated by human words, human vocabulary, and written by human hands. And the Holy Spirit motivates the writer of uh, 2 Samuel and motivates that writer to reveal that Michael hated David. And it was a heart hatred. She despised him. She resented him, and it's all connected to what came before that. He was leaping, he was dancing, and he was worshiping. If you think I'm being too hard on her, she's going to indict herself in a moment with her own words. I'm not being too hard on her. She hated everything about the whole scene. Now, you've, you've got you've to think like this. How can a, a person in covenant with God, how can a, how can a person hate the presence of God. Now, Michael would never say that she hated the presence of God, but Michael wanted to dictate what the presence of God should look like and what the celebration of his presence should look like, and that's the religious spirit. The religious spirit puts God in a very small, tight box with a lid, and that religious spirit determines when that lid comes off, when that lid goes back on, but whatever happens is always up to that religious spirit. And we've all learned that God doesn't fit in anybody's box, not yours, not mine, and not Michael's. And so when this, this started happening here, we find out that her heart is written in Scripture completely contrasted with David's heart. David's heart is dancing, celebrating, shouting, singing, twirling, rejoicing, giving stuff away, blessing other people. And Michael is sitting up in an ivory tower looking out of a window just saying, I can't wait till he comes home. I cannot wait to unload on this buffoon who calls himself my husband. So go a little bit further with me. We're going to end on a high note. There's a reason why I'm giving you all of Michael, and then I'm going to give you all of David, because I like David's words better than Michael's words, and we're going to end with David. So verse 20, David comes in the front door. Honey, I'm home! Verse 20, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Wait, that's the second time that she's been called the daughter of Saul. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and forgive the sarcastic tone, but this is the way she would have said it, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Um, I find it very interesting that she was motivated to arise to rebuke, but not motivated to arise to rejoice. 
She was instantly motivated because she had a rebuke to give to the worshiper, but she was not motivated at all to get up off her backside and worship God herself. But she was waiting until David came home. She'd been stewing in her bitter juices. And finally he walks in the door. I feel for the dude. I've done enough marriage counseling to see some pretty defeated husbands who are really going after the Lord, and they have victory everywhere in their life, but they're married to a Michael. By the way, I've seen it flip-flop where the husband's the Michael too. So ladies, I'm not, I'm not being unilateral to that. One of the hardest things is to see the touch of God everywhere in your life and then to come home and know that it's going to be hellish when you walk through the door. And it would seem to me that David's motives were to go home and bless Michael. That's what it says. He wanted to go home and bless his household. So he walks in there to be a blessing. And he doesn't even get the word out before she gets up, comes down the little spiral staircase. I'm using my imagination. Walks through the marble floors, gets in his face and says, weren't you glorious today? Do you think for one moment you can act like a king? Don't you know what a king's supposed to act like? You're out there dancing around and you're flashing. That's what she was saying. And listen, he may very well have been doing that. Not intentionally, not to be vulgar, not to be crass, but that ephod would have been a garment with nothing under it and as he's twirling and dancing he was probably exposing himself to some degree so she had the facts but she had his heart completely wrong interestingly God never rebuked David for it but his wife did and so she gets all up in his face about this thing and I can just imagine the air going out of David just like are you kidding me I, I just I'm just celebrating the Lord's presence is back in Jerusalem I'm the, the kingdom's unified. We're, we're being blessed by the Lord, and now the ark is here, and we're celebrating. Michael, everybody was out there. There, were, there was music, and the priest, and the shofars, and the, the dancing. Did you hear the shouts? The, the glory of God is back, Michael. It's been decades. And all she could do was think about, my daddy never would have done it that way. I'm the daughter of Saul. My dad never would have done that. So, very quickly here, verse 23 tells you what the end result for Michael was. I'm going to come back to David's words because he handles this in a pretty amazing way, in my opinion. But verse 23 gives you the summary statement of the rest of Michael's life. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It doesn't tell us how or why. We're not told that she was cursed by the Lord. We're not told that she wasn't. It could have been that after that day, David said, I'm never going to touch her again. That woman doesn't respect me. That woman doesn't have a heart. I'm never going in unto her again. It could have been natural. It could have been supernatural. Either way, the Bible is clear in connecting Michael's barrenness to her response to her husband's worship. So how did David handle this? So I'm just going to end this message with a pastoral moment. I'm going to call this an attitude of prevailing. We're not talking about the dance anymore. Now we're talking about what do we do when our, our spirit that is so inclined to go after God and worship God and celebrate God and love God and be loved by God, to follow Jesus, to press in, to, to always hunger for the more, to to being willing to risk it and, and, and to put ourselves out there to serve, to give, to worship, to celebrate. Lord, we want you, we want you, we want you. And we, we're passionate about that. We're trying to grow in passion. We're trying to come out of our box and leave our shell and not be afraid. And we're just, we, we have this longing, like the deer by the stream. We're longing for God to, to, to slake our thirst for him. And yet here comes... Michael, spirit of Michael, opposition, sometimes it's human, sometimes it's demonic, it's warfare, sometimes it's our flesh that fights our worship. And David, when, when coming up against Michael, I imagine that he was probably initially devastated, but I love what he does here. He doesn't apologize for what he did. He doesn't say, you know, you're right, I'll work on this. He, he doesn't give her any 
he doesn't give her one second of affirmation about the spirit that she's coming against him with. So let's look at this and this attitude of prevailing. Friends, I'm going to say this, and you be wise how you apply this to your life. You don't have to entertain the voice of accusation that comes against you in your worship. You don't have to ask man's permission to worship the Lord. I want you to be wise in how you hear it because that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all wherever we are, but it does mean this, that we can worship the Lord to the fullest extent that God is calling us to worship. And when we are met with opposition, either from within or from the outside, either human or demonic, when we meet that spirit of bitterness, that spirit of suppression, that spirit of rejection, that spirit of fear, that spirit of superiority, that spirit, whatever it is, when we feel it trying to quench the flame of our passion for the Lord, we don't give it place. We don't stroke it. We don't reason with it. We reject it. We refuse it. We do it in the spirit of Jesus. We do it as unto the Lord, but we do not try to negotiate with a Michael spirit. So what did David do? Check this out. Come on, David. I think he's got two backbones. I mean, this is stout here. Verse 21 at the beginning. David says to Michael, because Michael gives her a little speech to David, and this is what David says. It was before the Lord. He's like, hey, honey, I wasn't doing that for you. It was to the Lord. And by the way, that Lord, our God, he chose me above your daddy. You feel it? I feel it. Come on, David. And above all his house. In other words, he removed your daddy and he bypassed all your brothers. And he put me as the prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. That is the equivalent of a Dikembe Mutombo shot block. <laughs> Boom! Michael goes up thinking she's going to do a one-handed windmill dunk on David. And, and David's like, shot blocker. He literally says to her, um, I'm not your dad. I don't want to be like your dad. You're like your dad. You're the daughter of Saul. And I want you to know that the God I just sweated my worship out for, he put me on the throne. The very one you despise, Michael, is the one that God has elevated. Now, it's possible to operate in that kind of spirit with no pride, with no arrogance, with no spiritual thuggery, you can literally stand in your confidence and look somebody in the eye who's coming hard after you, convinced in their mind that you're wrong and they're right, and they've got all of the dignity, they've got all of the culture, they've got all of the history in the palace, and they're coming at you, and they're not asking questions, they're throwing stones, and you can literally look at them and say, hey, you are so wrong I do not receive a single thing coming out of your mouth. And that's exactly what David did. You know, I think as we are growing in the Lord, um, when we're younger, we tend to maybe give that kind of pushback, but we do it in the flesh. We're, we're as hacked off in our righteous indignation as they are in their unrighteous indignation, and it's flesh fighting flesh. And though we may have the right position on a matter, but because we're fighting it in the flesh, God doesn't honor it. But as we grow older and wiser, we can make those hardcore stands and we can do it in the right spirit. Some of you are allergic to conflict. You're like, the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to me is to be in a conflict. Well, I'm going to burst your bubble. You shouldn't have become a Christian because you have a threefold enemy the world the flesh and the devil guess what you are in a conflict and the key is how do we stand our ground in a conflict because no i mean i don't think it's spiritual to love conflict and to love turmoil I don't, that's not what i'm saying but at the same time what do you do when somebody's coming after your heart 
coming after who you are in the Lord and they're bringing accusation against you. Some of you need to get mad at the devil because you, instead of listening to his accusations about all your sinfulness and all your struggles and all the things you've ever done wrong and the devil's just hounding you about how imperfect and incomplete you still are and you're, you, you come into this place where you're like, you know, he's right. Uh, okay, devil, I, I believe you. Some of you just need to say, you know what? The Lord knows I'm, I'm incomplete. The Lord knows that I've struggled. The Lord knows I've made mistakes, but he's the one who chose me and dethroned you out of heaven. And you literally put the truth back in the devil's court and you start teaching yourself, I don't listen to this. And then I like what David says, far from apologizing. Look at the second part of verse 21. He says to her, and I will celebrate the Lord. He's saying, oh, you th- do you think today was a one-time gig? Oh, Michael, you, you, I'm telling you, this is going to continue to happen. We're going to have night and day worship in the tabernacle. It's never going to stop. I'm going to go there every day, and I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to continue to do it. He didn't back off. He didn't get intimidated. He didn't quit. He didn't apologize. He didn't negotiate. She never says anything else. She's done. He just, he just took her whole argument away because she found out that her manipulative religious Michael spirit wasn't going to get anywhere with a man who had God's heart. And so she knew she couldn't win, so she just went mute. And, and then the last thing, verse 22. <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. I, I hope this is holy what I'm feeling, but I'm feeling it. He literally says to her, by the way, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But in the eyes of your female servants that you mentioned, they're going to honor me. What is he saying there? He says, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Here's something, here's something you're never going to forget. He literally, some of y'all don't know what I just did there, but some of you do. He says to her, he says, this was just the start. He says, it's going to go up in intensity. I'm going to worship the Lord in such a way that I'm going to get even lower and lower and lower in your eyes. Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, my God is worthy of far more than I was able to produce today. I will need to go back tomorrow and the day after and the day after. I've got to turn my worship up a notch. And so I want you to prepare yourself, honey. It's going to get way worse in your eyes. But the people that get my heart and know who I am and understand why he's worthy to be worshipped, they're going to think this is great. So you're just going to have to be disappointed with me. Come on, David. (laughs) I just absolutely love it. Um, As I close, I will say this. We're going to love everybody the Lord allows us to love. And I want to grow in love. I want to grow in grace. I have fought for the better part. uh, I I fought for for over a decade. I fought the worship wars. I, I... I get it. I know all the arguments. Everybody's got their preference of of worship. I get it. But I just want to tell you something. I won't fight you over that anymore. Uh, And we don't have that here now. I know we all have preferences, and not everybody likes everything the way we do it, and that's you go to any church, and it's going to be that way. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm just so enthralled with the Lord that even in moments where maybe we're corporately doing a song and I'm getting nothing. In those moments, I just like to look around and I start getting blessed by watching others who are getting blessed by the very song that doesn't bless me. You know why? Because in the moment where I could make it all about me uh, and I, I could begrudgingly wish that I could get in on this song or they do a song I could get in on, I just stop and I say, oh yeah, it has nothing to do with me. It is not about my taste. It is not about my preference. It is not about my history. It's not about the culture that I came from. It is actually about the one to whom the song is being offered. And when maybe it doesn't move me in a certain way, I look around and say, man, she's getting touched. That lady over there is getting touched. 
look at that dude over there. Look at that guy on his face over there. And there's something that happens in that moment where I'm just able to say, oh, the Lord is here, and if I'll just get still and just listen, I'll experience him too. So we're going to love everybody. But I will tell you this. Um, the spirit of Michael, wherever it pops up in my life, in your life, in our corporate life together, um, we won't give place to it. We, we, won't, we won't negotiate with it. We will love, but we will say very firmly, um, yeah, you're actually wrong. I appreciate your input, but I don't receive it. I don't affirm it. David went on to be the most glorious king until the king of kings came. Michael? Nobody's talking about her. Nobody's thinking about her. Why? Because God does not promote the bitter heart. Don't be her. Let's stand together.